Hey, Pod Academy listeners, this is a special edit of an interview just for you. It first appeared on the ideasbooks.org website, and it discusses the latest book from a remarkable Scottish doctor about the human body. I'm Craig Barfoot, and this is Ideas Books. This is the first ever episode, and what better way to start a series that explores books about the universe, about life, nature, and society, than by talking to an author of a book called Adventures in Human Being. This is a wonderful book. It's both a user's guide to the body and a celebration of the body's design, and I guess sometimes failings. It's written by the previous winner of the Scottish Book of the Year, physician Dr. Gavin Francis. And in our conversation, his honest, thoughtful ideas really touch on what it is to be a human being. Gavin Francis, thank you very much for taking time out to have a chat with me. Uh, You're welcome. Over your career as a doctor, you've you've held a a number of remarkable positions, from emergency room physician to Antarctic expedition doctor. Uh, But first, I'd like to talk to you about your time working with the brain in uh, neurosurgery. And because I'm fascinated by this process of something so extraordinary, like the brain and surgery on the brain, becoming something routine or something that you did every day. Well, I'm very glad that, that it does become routine for the people that do it every day. I mean, I, I was a, I had quite a junior neurosurgical trainee for a few months, and I was working with people who'd dedicated their lives to it and their whole careers, who'd been doing that job for 30, 40 years. And of course, for them, it does become very routine. Um, and if you're going to have your skull opened up by somebody, then you want it opened up by somebody who thinks about brains and neurosurgery all day, every day, and preferably has been thinking about it for quite a few years. Yeah, I'd hope so, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that wasn't for me because it was too far too narrow, but it was fascinating to do it for a few months, absolutely fascinating. I wouldn't have um, given that experience up for for anything. How is that, that, that first time that you you actually literally start poking about in, in someone's brain? <laughs> well, I've obviously, I only did it very much under supervision. So when I was a medical student, I loved neuroanatomy and neurology, and, and, and I paid particular attention to the brain because it seemed so enthralling, such a fascinating, mysterious aspect of our bodies, of our lives, of, of who we really are. For quite a long time, I thought that that's what I would do. I would do neurology or neurosurgery. So having been through that long experience, to actually be faced with a, somebody on an operating table with part of their skull removed and the brain um, pulsing beneath me, um, was a great, great privilege. There was a great sense of wonder there, a great sense of wonder that, that not only that all of us have this, that we're all made up of, of this sort of miraculous process going on, but also that there are people who are so highly trained, highly skilled that they can help fix it when it goes wrong. So yeah, a great privilege. How, how did it feel like? I mean, because for all of our knowledge about the brain, we, we really don't know that much about the brain. So, so what's it like kind of having to then go in there and, and do surgery on that? Well, it's kind of like surgery anywhere, except um, a lot, lot more delicate and you have to be a lot, lot more careful. Um, it's just that the consequences are so much greater and neurosurgeons have to be exceptionally, I think they have to have quite an, a, a set of 
exceptional qualities really. They have to be able to accept that when they make a mistake and, and something goes wrong, that they were the best that was available, that they did the best they could possibly do. Because the consequences of going wrong in the brain are things like paralysis or becoming deaf or mute or uh, par paralyzed, wheelchair bound. And so these consequences are very different from operations elsewhere in the, in the body where your, your consequences are maybe infection or partial loss of function. But surely, surely that is something, though, that you, 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 that all doctors do have to kind of accept, even though the consequences might not be so severe. I mean, they still could be. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why it takes so long to train doctors. It's um, because it's it's not so much the the mass of material that you have to cram. It's because you have to learn very, very careful set of decision making processes: when to intervene and when not to. And those kind of things you can't decide unless you've got an awful lot of experience, years and years of experience. So can you just unpack that for me, That just this idea of learning a, a series of decision-making processes? Well, for example, if somebody has a brain tumour um, and removing that brain tumour is possible but highly risky because removing it might involve that you make somebody incapable of speech or you make somebody wheelchair bound or you carry a 70% risk of catastrophic bleeding, then often it's not the technical aspect of removing that tumour that will take somebody years and years to learn. It will be having seen lots and lots of these things done and knowing when it was the right thing to do to actually not open the skull and not do the operation. And that goes for all sorts of other operations as well. Knowing when to intervene is just as important as knowing how you actually do the intervention. And similarly, you know, just in a very simple way with, with drugs, you know, you could somebody could come to you with a um, rheumatoid arthritis, say, and say, well, I want some drugs to treat my rheumatoid arthritis. But the drugs have all got side effects too. And um, knowing how to discuss that with somebody and elucidate from them what their priorities are, what side effects they're willing to take, what side effects they're not willing to take. That's an important part of being a good doctor. Um, not just saying, oh, you've got that, so therefore you get this treatment. You talk in the book about an, an unexplained feeling that people get. Uh, that I guess, well, since, I mean, Descartes, we've had this idea that uh, everything from the neck down is just this meat and, and, and plumbing. But you talk about patients who get this feeling, a sensation of dying, that doctors take very seriously. Yeah, that's in the same chapter as discussing this idea that, um, that sometimes um, people in extremists in the emergency department have a conviction that they're about to die. And um, that conviction isn't just taken as hysteria or... A, um, or uh, people being overdramatic. I mean, that conviction is always taken very seriously because um, experience has shown that if somebody is convinced that they're about to die or has a conviction they're about to die, often they're right. And so um, I discuss the fact that I've met several people in the emergency department who've, who've sort of gripped my arms and, and, and shouted at me that they're dying or that they're about to die. And then they have. And so... Nobody is exactly sure how that sensation becomes communicated. Um, but the idea that 
the you know if our if our one of our valves stops working in our aorta or or if your your aortic wall actually starts to crack and split people in those situations often have that conviction and it's given a name in latin uh, we call it angor animi or angor animi which just means anguish of the soul and you'll see it written in in medical records that um, patient experiencing angor animi will say and that just means the patient has said that they're convinced they're about to die it's a very morbid so subject of conversation. I'm sorry about that. No, but I mean, look, that, maybe that's a uh, part and parcel of of what you do. And is this uh, uh, is this something that I mean, is this the, the the kind of discussion that is just had between doctors, or is this the sort of thing that is actually being studied and and trying to work out if there is a connection? Um, no, no. I mean, people have looked into this. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say that I'm familiar with all the literature on it, but people have looked into it. Yeah, and certainly, I was always taught as a trainee doctor that if somebody told me that they had that conviction, that I should take it very seriously. And I've certainly, I've ordered an urgent, urgent CT scan of the chest on on people just because they've told me that they feel that they're about to die. You you also later on discuss a, a different feeling uh, that that overwhelms people sometimes with, with the strange name of pump head. So could you just explain to everybody what this is? Yeah, this is, when I was talking about pump head, it's with respect to um, a very beautiful poem by uh, a poet, Robin Robertson, who had, um, who had an aortic valve replacement, so that's an open heart surgery, and he published a book of poems, and in it was a poem about this experience of having um, open heart surgery. And when that happens, they um, they stop your heart, obviously, they, they crack open your ribs and splay your ribs apart, and then they plumb in a machine to take over the circulation of your blood. And so these heart-lung bypass machines can sometimes operate you know, keep your blood pumping around your body for several hours while the surgeons do the heart surgery. Um, but up to a third of people, when they come round after the surgery, experience this problem called pump head. It's a kind of problem with mood and memory. Robin Robertson in his poem describes a great blackness descending on his mood that swelled up and seemed to fill him. Um, some other people become very disinhibited, and so, you know, you hear stories of sort of frail little old ladies sort of starting to swear, foul-mouthed curses, and people who are ordinarily very genteel and polite becoming very vulgar or very violent, which is very poorly understood. Nobody's quite sure why it happens. It seems to be something to do with having been on a heart-lung bypass machine. And there has been theories put forward that it's because no matter how good the machines are, they're not, they can't adequately... Um, can't adequately reproduce the pressure pulse of a beating heart, then we have these problems. In uh, in your section on on, on the womb, uh, this 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 beautiful thing, I guess, that grows life, and you 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 dedicate that entire section to an incredibly moving story about an elderly lady's death. What what made you tackle this life giving subject in this way? One of the ways that I, as a doctor, encounter problems with the womb is when is it is the end of life, is towards the end of life, when sometimes people have cancer of the womb. And so 
it's quite that that story. You I mean you'll need to each reader will need to take from it what they want to take from it. But it's a it's a particular meditation on a, a night shift I once worked through the night where this um, lovely old lady just uh, slipped away and died because of cancer of the womb, and she was surrounded by her children and her grandchildren. So essentially the the kind of products or the, 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 the life that sprang from that womb were all around her and caring for her as she slipped away. So it was quite an emotionally charged evening, quite an emotionally charged engagement between a doctor and a patient, really. Um, and that's what I wanted to explore for that chapter. It's quite an unusual chapter in that it doesn't veer off into literature, philosophy or art. It just stays with that story. Yeah, almost all of your uh, chapters intertwine. It's not just a chapter on the brain and you explain how the brain works. It, it's really wonderfully interwoven between the stories of you in, the, in, your, in your job as well as images from literature. And uh, it's quite a, a poetic book. And this particular chapter, really, I found it really incredibly moving. So another interesting thing about that chapter is it, does account, it describes this sort of meeting with the priest of the deathbed because... The priest has been called to give last rites, and so there's sometimes doctors take on a bit of a priestly role, but we're not priests at all, we're not trained in that way, and sometimes priests take on a bit of a doctorly role, and um, and occasionally in my work I meet a priest or a minister or an imam, and we kind of have this sort of nodding professional acquaintance, um, and so that chapter, I suppose, touches on that, that unusual relationship. Just to change the track a little bit, I was kind of, uh, when you were writing about the, the nerve, and when you're talking about the genitals in that section, and writing about the nerve that coordinates the orgasm, that the, the, the naming of that comes from the Latin word to be ashamed. I mean, ah, that is a shame. I mean, what is it about nudity and sex that, that we have such a long history of shame? Yeah, I think I try to make the point that, you know, uh, people might get embarrassed about their sexuality or their sexual organs or they might get in some way feel um yeah they they might feel shy about them but they certainly shouldn't feel shame but the, the word shame comes because the old anatomists used to call um the genitals they called them the shameful parts and so the idea that the nerve that goes to that the nerve that the as you said, um, coordinates orgasm and so on. It was called the shameful nerve because that's what it did. And so we're still stuck with this kind of uh, ridiculous terminology that was applied in, in years gone past, even though we like to think anyway that we're a bit more enlightened now about it. And speaking of this uh, area of, of the body, what, what exactly is the role of the female orgasm? <laughs> well, there's lots of theories, <laughs> and um, um, none of them are entirely convincing. But I suppose what that chapter, this is a chapter about fertility and infertility, and it, it follows a couple on their um, journey through uh, infertility, an infertility clinic, and then IVF treatment. And um, there are various theories about how... Um, female orgasm or orgasm both parts actually helps fertility and so that um, a couple who are trying to conceive are more likely to do so if they are having uh, kind of satisfactory sex I guess. 
And it's a very old idea, you know, until basically until the late 1700s, the early 1800s, that was assumed that you couldn't conceive unless that was the case. And so that chapter is, is an exploration and a meditation of that idea that, that we had this very old idea that both couples had to reach some kind of a climax in order to conceive, and then that idea fell away for, for a couple of hundred years. And now, in some ways, that idea is starting to come back, um, like many ideas do. Gavin, you you, you comment that uh, one of your tutors tried to, uh, maybe persuade is too strong a word, but persuade you not to work with children. Uh, and you made a sad and very understandable comment that the parents of children who, who, who pass away often sue uh, mm. because of their grief and, and sort of this need uh, someone to blame. So I, I just thought I'd ask you how much of a of a, of a reaction is is that? Uh, well, I I just encountered it very briefly, um, but yeah, no, this is I worked for a little while as a student with a with a pediatric oncologist, and um, he told me that many of his patients. When they died, um, their parents often sued. And he didn't blame them. He said that it's kind of part of their grief process, that they feel this terrible loss and they feel they need to blame somebody and they think there must be somebody to blame and so they phone a lawyer. And it um, it was a, a great sadness, I think, about his life and his, his work, but uh, he saw it as a little bit, I don't know, something that was almost unavoidable. Is that something as a as a as a GP or a doctor in general that you have to kind of accept that every now and again you get that reaction? Um, I think uh, yeah, of course. I think it's part of being a professional and um, being held accountable to high professional standards. We all should be held accountable to high professional standards. But it's very very rare that people make complaints, and even rarer that there's been real negligence and then even rarer than that somebody actually sues. But yeah, it does happen now and again. You spent a bit of time, you write about uh, your, your time in, in Tibet. And uh, as someone who's, who's studied and worked in science and medicine, you give a very understanding account of the traditional medicine. In fact, you, you even wrote that sometimes you wish you often had a traditional uh, uh, healing practice down the road from you in Scotland. So. Can you just explain to me why your your thought process through this? Well, um, I think that Western medicine is amazing. And if you look all around the world, you will see that nearly every culture who can afford to starts to switch to it. So when they can. So wherever you go in the world, you will find people using um, Western drugs. You'll find people who have been trained in medical schools that have a Western model of approaching medicine. I mean, I'm in no way trying to, I'm not an apologist for um, some of the wackier kinds of complementary therapies, but I also think at the same time that um, sometimes in Western medicine we lose sight of how how important the, the context of people's lives is for why they're becoming ill at that moment. And that is something that I saw in Tibetan medicine can be better at. And I also think that we don't have, we don't know an enormous amount about how the human body works. There's still a lot we don't understand from a Western perspective. And so it's wrong to kind of point the finger and just laugh and mock at traditional 
ideas of the body, like humoral theories of the body and so on, because, you know, in some situations they make sense. And the most important thing at the end of the day is that you can give an explanation that makes sense to the patient in front of you and that you make them feel better. And so if you haven't made them feel better, uh, then you're probably not doing the right thing. Your uh, your your book uh, finishes the, the epilogue. There's literally just a couple of pages at the end. And it's most wonderful. It had a very personal kind of poetic tone. And after hundreds of pages of describing the human body, you spend this last couple talking about landscapes and, and physical places. So can you explain why you ended like this? Um, well, a few different reasons, I suppose. I mean, the, the idea that the book opens with is that you can imagine the body as a kind of landscape and that um, when I was young I wanted to be a geographer rather than a doctor. And so seeing the body, the human body, as a kind of landscape is something that comes quite naturally to me. But then, in addition to that, there's also this idea that um, the old ways of viewing the body, the sort of old ancient Greek ways, and then perhaps even the Tibetan ways that we just touched on, they also carry in them the idea that the body in harmony must be in communication with an environment that's also in harmony. And so the environment that we move and breathe in has a big effect and impact on our bodies and our health. It finishes up actually in a graveyard um, near my clinic, which just happens to be a very kind of beautiful, very wild graveyard all overgrown with lots and lots of different ecosystems happily coexisting among the graves. And the reason it finishes up there is is really because that's where <laughs> all of my patients are ultimately going, as will I. And so... Uh, no matter what wonderful advances we make in medicine, we have to make our peace with that. And so being part of being a doctor is, is, is this great privilege of being able to bear witness from people all the way from the cradle to the grave. And you're there from um, when, when people are trying to conceive, you're there through pregnancy, you can be there at delivery and birth, you're there all the way through life right up until death. And you get to... to you get this great privilege of being able to to take part in people's lives at all these big stages. But at the end of the day, that's where we're all going, and so that's where I wanted to finish up. <laughs> Gavin, uh, it, it was um, it was wonderful to, to, to go through and read your book, and, and such a privilege to be able to spend uh, some time talking to you. Thanks uh, thank, thanks so much for, uh, for having a chat with me. You're welcome, and um, thanks for having me on. So that is it. That's the first ever interview for Ideas Books with Dr. Gavin Francis about his book, Adventures in Human Being. If you want to get the book and help out the show as well, you can go to ideasbooks.org and click on the link to buy a copy. Or if you want to just go to ideasbooks.org and give me some feedback. Love it, hate it, change it. (laughs) And uh, because this is a new show, you can actually do something quite powerful and rate the show on iTunes. This helps new shows immensely. And hopefully if you and a few others like this and and keep listening, I can keep doing it because that's going to be fun and we're going to discover some awesome things. So thank you. My name is Craig Barfoot. Yes, that is my real name. And thank you very much for listening. Ciao.